0: Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for bringing us here. Open your word to us and us to your word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Today is a day of introduction. An introduction to the Gospels, an introduction to how they came to us, what they contain, what they don't contain, and a simple approach to reading them, both as sacred literature and as historical literature, as theology, because they are those things and more. The Gospels come to us from the church. They were written by Christians, by people of the early church, of what we call the New Testament church, the church of the first 70 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus to the end of the first century. That was when the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, the four Gospels that we have in our, in our Bibles were, were written. There were other Gospels that were written, both during that period of time, but most especially later. Um, and then there are pieces of other works that we have in our Gospels today that served as sort of the background for them. Now, I want to ask you, going at the gate of... Of the three Gospels we're going to look at in this study, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called the synoptic Gospels because they follow parallel to each other. Of the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which one begins the story the earliest? Mark. Mark. Mark? Is, is it all based on Mark? Okay. okay. Mark was written first, correct. I guess my question wasn't clear. Which one begins the story earlier?
1: Oh well. Uh, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke.
0: Matthew. Well Matthew. Be Matthew. Because, because Matthew. of That's the word.
1: Because of oh, the right. genealogy, maybe? Well probably Matthew. Or is it
0: later, begins with the genealogy. Where does the story begin? It, it's Luke. It's Luke. Oh, Luke begins okay. the story so, yeah. earlier. Oh. Okay. Luke doesn't begin with right. the annunciation. Of yeah. the birth of Jesus mm-hmm. begins with the annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus in the story. So actually, the story of the Gospels begins in Luke, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which is an interesting way of looking at it. As, a, as works of literature, the story, the backstory to Jesus, if you will, in the narrative account, Begins in Luke with the pronunciation or the proclamation of the birth of John the Baptist, who would then proclaim Jesus in all three Gospels as the Messiah. When the three Gospels come together, between the three of them, is at the baptism of Jesus, at the pronunciation of John the Baptist that this is the one, not me, him. But each of them, Matthew and Luke, each have a backstory to that. Matthew has the backstory of the birth of Jesus, uh, actually the Annunciation and to who Joseph, yeah. and then the birth of Jesus. Luke goes Annunciation to Mary, and actually before that, the Annunciation to the father of John the Baptist, who was Zechariah. Zechariah. On the birth of his son. So that's actually where our study begins in the narrative. We start with Luke. Actually, we start with all three. Um, I'll just read the, to you the very beginning of all three. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew begins. Mark begins... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke begins, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the true con- truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Now, you already can tell Luke's going to be kind of wordy. <clears throat> yeah. What else can you tell from the beginning of Luke's gospel? Uh, you notice Mark was the shortest of them, and that's going to be true all the way through
1: yeah.
0: with only a couple of exceptions. Matthew's a little little more inclusive, a little more data in that very opening sentence. Well, what did you notice about Luke's very beginning?
2: He's trying to bring together to sort of synthesize all the different accounts that have been being told about Jesus. He's, he's trying to... Um, Call out from the various stories what he understands to be the accurate account of the
1: life and ministry of Jesus.
0: Luke is doing research, <laughs> almost like in a story. Yeah. He is actually admitting, I have heard a whole bunch of stories about Jesus, I have read some stuff about Jesus. I wanted to set down, based upon my research, my talking to resources, my reading my understanding, I want to set down as best I can the story. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So this was written to a fellow named Theophilus. That you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. I
1: have
2: a question. Yes. Yes. Do we have any evidence that Theophilus was an actual person? No. Since Theophilus in Greek means lover of God.
0: It may very well be true that this is written as if to a single individual, but actually to a general audience, all lovers of God, which would not actually be unusual in the ancient world. To write your account as if you're writing to someone And that someone you give a generalized name that reflects the character of all those to whom you are actually writing. That could actually be the case. Or it could be Theophilus was not an unknown name, both within the church and outside the church. So it wouldn't necessarily be the case that it might be a general audience that he's identifying as Theophilus. But it also may be, it may be the case that it is a specific person. We don't know. We don't know. But that's an excellent question. Wh- whatever the case is, he's writing this to pull together information, resources, accounts. And try to put down, and I think it's interesting, an orderly account for you. That you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed so that's his purpose his purpose as he admits is to do this now let's think for a minute here we call them Matthew Mark and Luke now your Bibles will say the gospel according to Matthew the gospel according to Mark the gospel according to Luke but that's the superscription that's the titles given to each of the gospels who wrote them that could easily have been a fellow named Matthew and a fellow named Mark and a fellow named Luke. It could easily be the people to whom they are nominally or normally ascribed the disciple Matthew, John Mark, who was not a disciple, he was too young at the time, but he was an eyewitness to at least part of the account as told in Mark but more importantly was a traveling companion of Paul and of Peter, and was Peter's secretary. Mm -hmm. And it might be Luke, the physician, who was a traveling companion for a short period of time of St. Paul the Apostle. Could easily be those traditionally ascribed characters. But but what do we know about these three fellows? And what do we know about these three Gospels? Firstly, we know that in their earliest transmission, none of them were officially ascribed that this person wrote it. And we know that because our earliest references to them, to these Gospels, to Matthew, to Mark, and to Luke as Gospels, come to us in reference to what early church fathers say about who wrote them. For example, Bishop of Heriopolis, named Papias, has to tell the people in 125 AD, and up to 140, has to tell them, okay, Matthew wrote this gospel, Mark wrote this gospel, Luke wrote this gospel, John wrote this gospel. Why would he have to tell them if it was written at the top? Because
2: they couldn't read?
0: Possibly they couldn't read, but even those that could, I mean, they're reading his letters, would question, it, it, it didn't say it. They didn't identify who who wrote it. Not clearly, not directly, and in our earliest uh, fragmentary copies, it's not there. How old would they have been when they wrote this? They would have been around 100 years old or so, wouldn't they? No. Uh, John Mark was a young man of about uh, between 8 and 12 years old in 30 AD and because uh, he was a youth during the life of Jesus and if Mark was written as scholarship says between 60 and 70 AD he would have been about 50 years old I guess that's why I'm confused if, if, it's, if it's after the death and you know, when they were in the time of Jesus, and it was they were written 70 years later. Right. Good question. They weren't all written 70 years later. And you've got to also realize only one of the synoptics is it claimed a disciple wrote it? Or even that an apostle wrote it? Only Matthew is it claimed about that an apostle, disciple, wrote it. That's interesting because the criteria for inclusion in the New Testament was did did an apostle write it? If an apostle wrote it, it got in. And yet we got two Gospels, Mark and Luke, neither of which were written by apostles. That's fascinating. If someone was picking names to attach to Gospels, shouldn't they have picked Peter, and James Zebedee? I mean, well, it may have picked John, but there were other disciples of greater note. Peter, James, John. Why isn't there a gospel in our Bibles of Peter? Why isn't there a gospel of, in our Bibles of James Zebedee? That's a good question. And also raises what is known as historical veracity on at least to a degree that there may be something behind what Papias tells us that, some, that John Mark wrote Mark and that somehow Matthew was attached to Matthew's gospel and that Luke wrote Luke now I'm not saying that's a certainty I'm saying because they didn't assign Mark to say Peter that raises a good question why didn't they if they were making this up That would have been smart for a good reason because according to Papias, Mark was Peter's secretary and wrote down the teachings of Peter after Peter's death. Peter would have died in the mid-60s A.D. He had traveled with Peter. He heard the teachings of Peter about the life of Jesus and he wrote those teachings down according to Papias toward the middle to the end of the 60s. And if that's true, it's interesting that he would say it was Mark who wrote it down, and therefore we call it the Gospel of Mark. Why not Peter? It would have been much easier, would have given it greater authority, and especially when you consider that Mark was the favorite gospel of the church in Rome in the early years, between 100 and 200 A.D when these gospels were coalescing together into a group of four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that's fascinating so you'd think they would and Peter was the, is the quote unquote first bishop of Rome you would think that they would have assigned it to, to Peter there must have been a strong tradition already in place when Papias writes it down that he learned from John the Elder that Mark wrote his gospel based on the teachings of Peter Therefore, I tend to buck the, the current scholarship's approach that says that Mark was written by an unknown fella and only got ascribed to Mark, John Mark, on the teachings of Peter later. There, it, it just doesn't make sense to me that it didn't get ascribed to Peter or to one of the other principal disciples. Now, so that's part of what I, where I begin. I think... That the tradition about Peter having taught Mark, uh, Mark having traveled with Peter, listened to Peter for years, teach about the life of Jesus, and then after Peter's death, Mark writes it down. I think that that tradition has an appeal. It's contrary to to the wishes of the early church to ascribe it to an apostle, because you could have ascribed it to Peter, you could have just dropped Mark altogether. Why didn't they do that? Something strong was hanging on, identifying this gospel with John Mark. Mark, who we read about in the gospel, by the way, and who has a very interesting role to play in that gospel, as you'll see when we get to the very end of it. He's the young man, and it's in the, only in this gospel that it exists. He's the young man who gets stripped naked at the garden scene, <laughs> running away. It gets left out of Matthew and Luke. They edited it out. It's one of those few verses that gets chopped out when Matthew and Luke Luke use Mark to create their Gospels. It's it's in Mark's Gospel, i.e. his signature. This was me. Mm -hmm. Another internal piece. So I tend to believe that current scholarship that wants to ascribe this to an unknown early Christian community and that tradition later ascribed... The name marked to it in the back history of Peter is, I think, too skeptical, too questioning. Nothing wrong with asking the questions, but there's enough internal historical evidence and literary evidence that indicates that this gospel, not only is it first, not only is it simpler, but that it may very well be connected with Peter. And we'll see some of those examples later on. For instance, I'll give you one right now. It's the hardest on Peter. Mark's gospel is the hardest on Peter, presents Peter in the worst light. Whereas Matthew and Luke soften it. When Peter does stupid things and sticks left foot and mouth, Matthew and Luke soften it a little bit. Mark, make it hard. I mean, there's no wiggle room for Peter. Which would indicate that Peter was hard on himself. And we knew that was the case. So there are lots of internal evidences that would point towards at least some kind of connection between Peter and the Gospel of Mark. But that Peter wasn't its author. You better believe the early church in uh, in the second century would have grabbed at the option to give it to Peter. And they didn't. Why? Because the tradition that Mark wrote it was too strong. So... Papias tells us that Mark comes from Peter. In other words, Peter tells the stories. Mark listens to them. After Peter dies, Mark writes them down. What does Papias tell us about Matthew? He says that Matthew, the disciple, writes down the sayings of Jesus in Aramaic. Well, when you look at the Gospel of Matthew... You notice that it was originally written in Greek. And in fact, it uses Mark as its outline, as its base. The author of Matthew takes Mark, the Greek Mark, and he spreads out the verses and he inserts lots of stuff into it. Lots of teachings of Jesus into it. Luke does the same thing. Takes Mark, stretches it out. And inserts lots of teachings into it. They both do the same thing independently. Hmm. Why would Matthew the disciple need to use somebody else's chronological story. And insert stuff into it to create his story. He wouldn't. He'd write it out himself. And Papias says that he wrote it down in Aramaic. And Matthew's gospel wasn't written in Aramaic. It was originally written in Greek. It's not called translated Greek. It's compositional Greek. It means that it was originally written in that language using other sources that were also in Greek for the most part. So it doesn't really fit that what Papias says about Matthew going back to the disciple would be valid textually, literarily, linguistically, historically. There's a problem. Also, Matthew was the oldest of the disciples. He was older than Jesus by as much as a couple of decades, but certainly 10 years, which would have made him, let us say let's say 10 years, it made him 40 when Jesus died. And Matthew, based on Mark, if Mark was written down, let's just choose a nice easy date at 68. Let us say Mark was written in 68 A.D., Before the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem, because it contains no evidence that that had happened yet, but after after the death of Peter in 65, so 68. If Mark had been written just before 68, actually, then Matthew couldn't possibly have written before 68 because he has to have a copy of Mark. So most scholarship tends to put Matthew 75 to 85. I like to split the difference and say 80. Well, if Jesus was born in 2 or 4 BC and Matthew was born in, let us say, 14 BC, then that would make him 94 or thereabouts. Now, while people have been known to live that old even back then, it's very rare. So there's an issue and a problem with Matthew being the author of the gospel described to him already in terms of time. However, some scholarship, and I follow their lead, some scholarship says that, in fact, what Papias is referencing is not the canonical, the biblical gospel of Matthew. Because he calls it the Logiai, the words of Jesus. He doesn't call it the Hegelion, he uses Eugelion of Mark. He uses Eugelion of Luke. He uses Eugelion of John. That's the Greek word for gospel. But when he comes to Matthew, he says the sayings, the words, the teachings, the logia of Jesus. That sounds like a collection of teachings, not a full-fledged gospel. And some scholarship back before about 1950 and now some scholarship today since 1995 has started to say that in fact what Papias was referencing was not the Matthew Gospel that we have in our Bible but one of the sources that predates Matthew and Luke, which they call Q because most of them were German, the scholars who came up with this idea were German and they call it the, the, the writings quella. Therefore it gets shortened to Q, it's easy to handle. That's not the alien on Star Trek who has all those powers and gives Picard trouble. It's 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 a, it's a document, a collection of the sayings of Jesus. One or two miracles, and the rest of it is Jesus said this, Jesus taught this, the parables, the teachings of Jesus. Bang, 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 bang. Scholarship on Q has tended in the last 20 years to say that it came out of another early community of Christians that was separate from Mark and only loosely connected to Matthew and Luke, but Matthew and Luke got it and used it. Some scholarship on Q, however, has gone behind Q, has reconstructed Q, and you do that by taking Matthew and Luke... Matthew and Luke comparing and contrasting them against Mark and anything that's in Matthew and Luke that is, that is has the same written source as its background but that's not in Mark is in Q. me repeat that. If Matthew and Luke contain something that is not found in Mark but which Matthew and Luke quote closely if not verbatim, then that gets assigned to Q, to the same source, the logiai. And some scholars, and a fellow by Ricky, who is a, a, a Scandinavian New Testament scholar, has been the most recent one to resurrect the idea, has said this is what Papias was talking about. and 140 AD, that would have still been available probably. And some other scholars have picked up Ricky's thinking and have made the argument and have studied the the content of the reconstructed Q reconstructed from Matthew and Luke. And I've identified within it the Aramaic precursors, i.e., originally Q was made up of several bodies of teachings. And the oldest of them, the oldest body of the teachings of Jesus, were originally written in Aramaic. Because it's those pieces of Matthew and Luke that read and sound like translated Greek, translated from Aramaic, early Hebrew, uh, late Hebrew, and so scholarship, some scholars of the last ten years have been saying that's what Papias was referencing. The Logia is the Q source, the the, the teachings document that Matthew's gospel. And Luke both used, in addition to Mark, to write their Gospels. Hence, since Matthew, the author of Matthew, used Q so extensively in, in a certain way, in a way that, that, that clumped the teachings together instead of spread them apart like Luke did more, the name Matthew, who Papias says wrote that saying source, got attached to the full gospel. I'll repeat that. The theory is that Papius was right. Matthew the disciple in about 40 to 50 AD had to have been before 55 because Paul had it in Greek. Because he quotes from it in Romans, he quotes extensively from it towards the end of Romans, he quotes extensively from it in Corinthians he quotes from it in a couple of other Gospels, a couple of other his letters. So we know he had a copy of it in Greek by 55 A.D., which means it had to have been written in Aramaic sometime in the 40s. And that's when some scholarship tends to pin the writing down of the sayings of Jesus that has been now identified as Q. Now it went through a period of evolution and development and growth. Some of it was written after it got translated into Greek. But as the sayings of Jesus were codified and collected and written down. But the core of it was originally in Aramaic. And Papias is reflecting upon and communicating in his writing and saying Matthew wrote the sayings of Jesus in Aramaic. He's actually referencing not the gospel, but the saying source that sits behind... The gospel and contains all the teachings of Jesus that you don't find in Mark. It's an interesting theory. Can't be proven. Mm-hmm. I like it. Can't be proven, but there's lots of indicators that it might be true. Which would mean then that we have today available to us inside Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Essentially, two sources for the life of Jesus. We have Mark and we have the same source called Q. Matthew and Luke take both of them and use them to write their Gospels. Adding in oral traditions that were prevalent where they lived for the birth narratives and the post-resurrection stories. And that's called the two-source hypothesis for how Matthew, Mark, and Luke could be written parallel seem to be quoting each other or quoting a common source. And usually they're quoting Mark, and therefore we can find it. Even down to Mark's misspellings. Yeah. And yet at the same time, Matthew and Luke can be quoting something that's not in Mark. They're quoting it, and we know they're quoting it because they're repeating the same grammatical errors that they nowhere else make. There had to have been a source that they both had in addition to Mark. And there, then Papias would be correct in the following that Peter stands behind the teachings that Mark writes down. However, Papias doesn't like the order of events in Jesus' life that that, that contains. He prefers John. Well, scholarship prefers Mark. And Papias is also right that Matthew wrote down a sayings of Jesus. And he would have been capable and alive at the time that Q would have been written. He would have only been 50 if he was 10 years older than Jesus between 30 and 40 AD and 40 and 50 AD when that period when it needed to be when the writing down needed to begin. Luke, a companion of the apostles isn't one. Never claims to be one. He says, I did this research. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've learned. And I've written it down in an orderly pattern. He admits that he's done research. And we can see that in his writing. Compared with Matthew. Compared with Mark. There's another source that uses Q. Does anybody know what it is? Is it John? No. John has a different... Source for its gospel, its stories. They're called dialogues, his stories of Jesus, and it's a different way of teaching and communicating information rather than parables and other simple teachings. And while he may have been familiar with Q, he doesn't quote it very often. There's another gospel that seems to know Q and uses it outside the Bible.
2: Would that be Thomas? It's Thomas.
0: Oh. The Gospel of Thomas. It's often identified as the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas because the addition that we have in most circulations is very Gnostic. It says things like, For Mary to enter heaven, she must be converted into a man. Mm-hmm. Because only spirit, only spirits, spirits are only male, not female. Therefore, for Mary to get into heaven, she must be made into a man. That's a very Gnostic understanding, by the way. It's really weird. <laughs> and it contains other similar kinds of stuff. But studies have shown that Thomas is not originally Gnostic. That it actually also went back to an earlier Greek authorship. Sometime right after the end of the first century. And some scholars actually think that it could actually be an expanded version of Q. Somebody took Q, expanded it, and added stuff in. Because many of the teachings that are found in Q that make their way into Matthew and Luke, which is how we know about them, are also found in Thomas. Sometimes without the editorial editions of Matthew and Luke. So I tend to think that the author of Thomas used Q. And that's what a lot of scholars now think. I think it's correct. So Q was still in circulation by the end of the first century. And I think it was probably still around at the time of Papias, And he knew about it. And that's what he's referencing. Not the Gospel of Matthew. Now this set of relationships can be shown in a chart that I've created. The relationships between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what I've done is I've sort of charted it out exactly as I presented it, but it's a whole lot easier to follow. <laughs> Trust me. Um, the relationship between Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And then what I just indicated has, is written down here. Up until about 125 A.D., the Gospels were generally not attributed to any author. At about 125, Bishop Papias of Heriopolis, a city in Asia Minor, wrote a book in which the identity of the gospel's author is given about the gospel of Mark and so forth. Everything that I just said, I've kind of distilled down here. So you see the charting. And go find Mark on the page, the big Mark. 65, 68 A.D. Go back from it. Peter's teachings about the life and ministry of Jesus, which would have, the teachings would have occurred about 10 years prior to Peter's death up until Peter's death. Back to the actual events themselves. The events, some teachings, crucifixion, death and resurrection of Jesus, 27 to 30. That's the content of Mark. The oral teachings of Jesus, 27 to 30 again. The Aramaic notes, which Matthew wrote down during Jesus' ministry or immediately after his death and resurrection. I actually think it was after. Because during his ministry, they didn't have time. They were too busy, they were on the road, they were moving, they were too busy to think about needing to write it down. They didn't think anything about writing it down. But early on in the early church, in the 30s and 40s, it became obvious that the preachers who were taking the gospel out to the world were going to need to have something written to use because most of them weren't there didn't hear Jesus or heard Jesus only a little bit at most in Palestine. And so they started writing down the teachings of Jesus for the earliest evangelists to have access to. That's the earliest part of Q. It becomes the saying source, Q. And I I call that Matthew's notes translated into Greek. And then that becomes the source along with Mark for the writing of Matthew and Luke. And you see I date Matthew 75 to 80 and Luke 80 to 85. You could even swap those dates, doesn't really matter. I just prefer those that particular set of dates. And then Matthew and Luke both would contain material unique to Matthew, material unique to Luke, birth and death narratives and their source. And the early church tradition says that Luke got his sources from Mary and the surrounding family. That's questionable. It's part of the tradition. It's a later tradition found by the time of Eusebius. It doesn't go back to Papias. But it's an interesting tradition. And since Luke's gospel tends to focus more on Mary, that, uh, it's understandable how that idea rose. Now, as I said, this is going to be an introduction Today, to the concepts and ideas behind the synoptic Gospels, this is one of the most important pieces of that introduction. The fact is, is that studies done over the last 150 years studying Matthew, Mark, and Luke prove, in my opinion, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Mark was written first and is the basis upon which Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels. And that there was another source. Now, there are other theories as to how they came about, and we might talk about them if you want later. But I tend to agree with the basics of current scholarship, which is Mark was written first, Matthew and Luke used Mark and the same source in the writing of their Gospels. Of that, I think there is no question. But the current trend towards establishing communities from which each of these Gospels came including Q, that were independent from the other communities, I think is less less viable. There was too much interaction between those communities. We see that in the Acts of the Apostles and in the letters of Paul, who was there and was traveling at the time that these communities would have been developing. And um, we see there's too much connection between them. There was lots of disagreements between them but they did exist and, and, and they did communicate. And I don't think that those communities, however, were independently responsible for these Gospels. Um, as I said earlier, Mark was the favorite of Rome. Matthew was the favorite of Palestine, especially Caesarea and Antioch. Luke was the favorite of Greece. And Asia Minor, the Greco part of the world. John was also a favorite gospel in Asia Minor, but also in Africa, in Egypt. So each region of the church had a gospel, which is also part of the reason why we have four gospels, by the way. (laughs) Now... To demonstrate how Matthew and Luke used Q, I created a second chart. I didn't create it, I copied it. And I'll show you the original I copied it from, and you'll be happy I did it this way. This chart shows Mark and Q, and then illustrates how Matthew and Luke took Mark, which is the dark material, spread it out, and then took Hugh, the saying source, and inserted the teachings within the framework of Mark to create their Gospels. The two charts, the chart is done this way to illustrate something very important. Firstly, 98% of Mark is recreated in Matthew and Luke.
1: That's fascinating. Except for the little yeah, the young man, the young man, and away. two
0: other two other little stories. I mean,
1: that's so that's, that's wonderful to have that in there.
0: That little piece of it, it, it's a little what's called an historic fossil, a literary historic fossil. The question is, why did they get cut out by Matthew and Luke? And the fact that it remains, that it's in Mark and it survives, tells you it's important to Mark's gospel. It's his signature. This is me. I actually happen to believe that. Then you see how the, you notice that the order of lines with one exception, actually it's more than one, but it's enough with almost one exception. The order of the lines from Q into Matthew and Luke follow pretty much the same sequence with a few exceptions. But you notice that Matthew groups the teachings from Q together more than Luke does who spreads them out. The fact that they are found in generally the same order with a few exceptions between Matthew and Luke is an indicator that there is one of the many indicators that they're using a common source that has the events in the same order. <laughs> now there's an extremely detailed chart of this that I have that you all are welcome to look at. I looked online to try to find to buy a copy of this puppy so I could hang it on the wall because it won't come off the book and I don't want to destroy the book to do it. But this, this is a reproduction, the chart I produced, is a reproduction of this. Oh,
1: that is some research there. Which is
0: the entire trip <laughs> of all three Gospels parallel with Matthew repeated twice on each side. Showing all the interconnections between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some grad students. <laughs> PhD dissertation, probably. <laughs> it's an amazing piece of work. But I found on Amazon.com it's going to cost me 68 bucks. I'm not going to buy it just to get the chart. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not stupid. So I recreated the essence of it here. This illustrates what this proves. This gets all the verses in the tiny little print. And how they interconnect between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it shows how Matthew and Luke used Mark to create their outline, their framework, their chronological framework. And then how they used another source to fill in the material that's not in Mark. So you want to look at this. You're welcome to. It's a fabulous chart. And I, I spent a year and a course on the Gospels following it and only got about three inches down (laughs) because it takes a long time and we're not going to do that trust me we're not going to do that we're going to read them parallel we're going to read them parallel and pay attention to how they differ and, and talk about maybe why they differ can we figure that out? Why does Matthew say it this way, but Luke says it this way, and Mark says it this way? Why did Matthew change Mark? Why did Luke change Mark? Why do they change Mark differently, or possibly, why do they change Mark the same? Why did Matthew and Luke use this other piece of material, and each one use it slightly differently, insert it at in a different place? It'll be obvious when we hit it, you know, what we're dealing with here. You'll, you'll, you'll notice it when there's a great big gap in Mark and Matthew and Luke include almost the exact same thing you're reading Q it'll be obvious and we'll take a look at that now the last thing I do on any introduction and next time it'll be reading Bible straight through trust me and any questions you've got I'm always happy to answer the last thing I do on any introduction is talk about our actual textual sources and in Matthew Mark and Luke we've got a few First of all, where did your Bible come from? Harper columns. <laughs> <laughs> did, did God give it to Moses on Mount Sinai? No. 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 A bunch of
1: people
0: wrote
1: it. A bunch of people wrote it. Ancient
0: people. And copies of it circulated. Now, first of all, let's, let's just take, let's talk for a moment about the Gospels. When did Matthew, Mark, and Luke... If if they were written at at the dates that I propose... And that scholarship essentially says... And agrees on... If Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written when they were written... When were the Gospels... The synoptic Gospels and John... When were they collected together and started... When did they start circulating together as a group? Who knows? The first is called the Muratorian Canon... It's the first published collection of the New Testament. Included the four Gospels, Acts, and Paul's letters. And that's it. It's called the Muratorian Canon. A collection for the early church. And it's first mentioned... And this collection in existence is first mentioned in 170, 80. So by 170, the four Gospels, Acts, and Paul's letters were circulating as a collection.
1: All of Paul's letters.
0: Except the pastoral epistles. Not Timothy's and not Titus. But the rest of them, Yes. Paul's letters were circulating by 90 AD because Clement, Bishop of Rome, quotes from them in the 90s. So Paul's letters were in circulation as a collection by 90. Paul dies in 65. By 90, his letters have been collected and are in circulation. The four Gospels... Well, Acts is connected to the four Gospels because Luke wrote it. The same person who wrote Luke also wrote Acts. We know that as a fact. Same author. Um, even, it even claims it in the text. Um, the four Gospels were favorites of various churches. But we know that, that by about 120, they're circulating together based on references we have to them and based on fragmentary pieces that include from 140 and 150 that contain one gospel on one side at the very end and another gospel on the other. Hmm. So, by 120, we've got the gospels collected together, Acts probably about the same time. By 170, though, We have it quoted that these sources are all part of the early church's first canon. The Holy Testament doesn't come to us as we know it until the year 368. When St. Athanasius publishes a letter, his Easter letter, that year and says... These are the books that you can accept as the Word of God. And then he lists all the ones that we have in our current New Testament. Plus the Shepherd of Hermes. (laughs)
2: Did did he he discard any?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. There were lots of things that were in circulation in that day that we still have some of that he did not include. That other authors earlier on did and which copies of the Bible contained for a whole thousand years. The Shepherd of Hermes can be found in copies of the New Testament as late as 1000 A.D. That's amazing. The Shepherd of Hermes? It's an interesting read, but it's definitely not the same kind of literature as it's very poetic. It's not the same kind of literature as the Gospels or the Pauline letters. It's more like the Psalms or the Proverbs or the Song of Solomon. Okay? Now, going back behind this, what's our earliest textual evidence for the Gospel of Matthew? Well, I've collected here. Just take a look, feel it, and pass it on. There's not enough for everybody to have it. That's papyrus. That is papyrus. That's the earliest kind of paper. It comes from Egypt. It's made of a plant. They take leaves of the plant and they lay them down on top of each other. They get them wet. They then let them adhere to each other and then they let them dry. And then they, they press it flat to press out all the water. They let them dry in the sun and it creates a kind of paper.
1: Are writing is here? These... Huh? What what kind of there's no writing on it. No head. writing. It's just oh. paper. That's
0: just paper. That's just paper. It's blank paper. They're using visual It's ink, no, yeah. <laughs> 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 it, it, it's modern papyrus. It's not ancient. Trust me, I can't afford ancient papyrus sheets. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And there's a, what's called the recto, which is the front side, and the verso, which is called the back. The recto is smooth, the verso is rough. A very, 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 very expensive book would be written only on the recto. A cheaper book, like most of our New Testament letters, would be written on both sides.
1: So the smooth side, I take it, a quill could travel?
0: Easily. It's more difficult to write on the verso. Now, um, this material is what the early Bible was written on. The first, the autographs, the originals, were written on papyrus, without exception. They were written on on papyrus. It was the cheapest writing material they had. And still, it was very expensive. You had to be either wealthy or working for the government to have access to papyrus to write on. So it's amazing that the church was able to write down, that Paul was able to write his letters, and that the authors of the Gospels were able to write their Gospels. It was an expensive undertaking. It wasn't done willy nilly. It had to have a, a, a wealthy benefactor or benefactors to do one copy. And at first, they were circulating one book or one letter at a time and then eventually the letters all at once and then the Gospels all at once and then the Gospels and the letters together well what's our earliest copies the earliest complete copies come after the papyrus period <laughs> from the 4th and 5th century our earliest copies of the New Testament can be found the, complete, the earliest complete copies of Matthew, Mark and Luke The earliest complete copies are Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. It's two different uncial or magistral manuscripts. Not made out of papyrus, but out of parchment. What's parchment? Sheepskin. Sheepskin, which is even more expensive than papyrus. Sinaiticus, which is written with the Hebrew letter Aleph, and Vaticanus, which is written with the B, which actually is a V, both date to the mid-300s A.D., the 4th century, and may well have been the first official government-produced Bible ever, part of Constantine's commissioned Bibles, of which there were to be 50. Possibly that's the case. They're certainly official productions of some extraordinarily wealthy house, publishing house, wealthy individual wealthy government or something because these things in their day and age would have cost the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it is believed, based on when they were written, that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Alexandranus especially, that these big parchment-based manuscripts, complete or mostly complete copies of the entire New Testament, plus other works like The Shepherd of Hermes, and the Old Testament, in some cases, that these great big manuscripts were the productions of the Roman government. They would be the only one of the only institutions that could have afforded it at that point. Before them, what did Sinaiticus and Vaticanus use to write their gospels? To write their books? To copy, Where do they get their sources? Where did they get their copy of Matthew? Where do they get their copy of Mark? Where do they get their copy of Luke? To put in and write down the manuscript that we now call Sinaiticus. They got it from the papyrus collections. The earlier non-governmental, earlier church productions that were written on papyrus, most of which have disappeared today, but some of which remain. And I have collected uh, just a sampling. This is not complete. But a sampling of the more important papyrus manuscripts that contain at least part of Matthew. They're all fragmented. And I gave some examples of how they're fragmented. For instance, Papyrus 1, which dates to the 3rd century, the 200s A.D., contains chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, chapter, uh, verse 12, and verses 14 through 30. It's essentially one sheet front and back with this text on it the rest of the book's missing the rest of the gospel's missing it's been destroyed, it's been burned it's been eaten by critters in fact many of our earliest fragmentary copies survived to us because somebody took a page of an early papyrus that was being destroyed burned or whatever And they put it in a great big box and they put it up on their altar and said, that's a copy of the original. They they put it in a reliquary and claimed that it was a copy of the original. And that's how some of them survived for so long. No one touched them. (laughs) Certainly wouldn't burn it. If it was your only relic, you'd better believe you're going to keep it. Even if it wasn't true, that's what you're going to do. But most of them survived sitting... Buried, usually, and some of the more earliest ones were found in deserts and in monastic libraries. Um, You see, I go all the way through uh, papyrus one hundred and five. You notice that the papyrus figures go all the way up to the sixth century, because even after the official government scriptorium began producing great big Bibles in parchment, there were Christians who were still hand, you know, they were all hand copied. We're still making their own personal copies. If you're making your own personal copy, you're gonna make it on the cheapest thing you've got, papyrus. So you see, we've got lots of different copies. Notice P64 and P67, they're, this, they're part of one single manuscript. It's called the Magdalene papyrus. It's pretty extensive. It's got lots of fragment pieces. P70, dating to the 3rd century, actually very early 3rd century, like 200 to 250, is also fairly extensive in pieces. Some at, Back in the 4th uh, century, some of these would have been completely intact. And apparently the scribes who copied down Sinaiticus and Vaticanus took one or two... ...of these papyrus. We don't know which one, and we probably don't have it. And used it as the basis to copy and create their gospel. It's interesting that Vaticanus, which is the 4th century... ...follows really closely fragments of P75. In fact, some of the little... you'll know, ...notice it's in Luke, fragmented chapters... Three through 7, chapter 9, chapters 17 and 18, and chapters 22 through 24 of Luke's gospel. It's fragmented chunks of the gospel. There's a lot of it there. And P75, which is 3rd century, seems to be the, the, the copy that the author, the scribes that did Vaticanus used to create theirs. Some of the same mistakes occur. So, you can say, that we got our Bibles in... Okay, who has an RSV? You have an RSV, don't you? Who has a King James? You have a King James? Mm -hmm. Who has an NRSV? I do. I do. Okay, NIV, NRSV, RSV to an extent. They are all based on as much of the earliest papyri. And the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Alexandrinus they're all based on an edited edition of the Greek New Testament that's based on these things. On all of these papyrus manuscript fragments and on Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus, the New Revised Standard, the Revised Standard, the NIV, many of the most modern translations are all based on these early 4th, 3rd, and 2nd century manuscripts. The King James is based on 10th to 14th century manuscripts. Now, the amazing thing is the degree to which it didn't change in a thousand years of copying. But when you have really big differences between the King James and the NIV or the NRSV, it's usually because of one of two factors. Either the change in the English language over 400 years. Which from 1611 to today is pretty extensive. And, or even more importantly, a difference in the textual background. And every once in a while we'll notice one of those and we'll talk about them. When we get to the end of Mark's Gospel, there's a lot of that. But there's other places where there's extensive differences. Because the textual background behind the King James is very different. Very much younger than the textual background behind the more modern translations like the nrsv the rsv the niv and other translations and we'll have lots of different translations here as i'll be printing out pieces and we'll be looking like the message and the new living bible just fascinating stuff but just so that you know when you're using a more modern translation one that's been done since the 1950s let us say you're dealing with A a copy of the gospel that is that stretches back to the papyrus period and the fourth century great manuscripts. Hence they're only removed from the autographs, the originals, by three to four hundred years at most. When you're using a Bible that dates that is the King James, let us say, when you're using the King James. Or one or two other Bibles that are since the King James, you're using a textual base that's a thousand years further removed from the autographs. I still find it amazing the degree to which a thousand years changed little. It's 92% thereabouts identical. It's that 8% that can sometimes get you. But nothing of critical importance was lost or changed in the additions that occurred. Because mostly it's additions, things that got added in to the text. And we'll see some of them. And we'll talk about those later. Beginning next week, we'll start with Luke. And we'll read the Luke story on the narrative. The narrative of Luke's story on John the Baptist, the annunciation, his birth, and we'll get as far as we can hopefully to the point where we can also read parallel with Matthew on the birth of Jesus. This was an unusual session. We don't normally do it this way. Trust me. We normally read the Bible, but it's I find it very important to talk about the sources, the background, the history I could have gone into depth, much further depth, depth on any of this. Um, textual criticism is a deep favorite field of mine. I love to study the textual background of the New Testament, especially. And so, getting into this kind of source study, this textual study, I find very fascinating. So, if I ever get too deep in any of that at any point, tell me to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> What's important is what the text says. And sometimes you have to understand the background to understand what the text says, why it says it one way in my NRSV and says it differently in Margaret's King Jimmy. And it doesn't mean that either was wrong or right, by the way. The King James is a beautiful translation. I love it. It's tough for a lot of people to read and tougher for a lot of people to understand Principally because the English language has changed so significantly in 400 years, for instance. What, did the word, what does the word let mean, L E T? It, it
1: means, means has been to allow. Yeah.
0: In 1611, it meant to hinder. <laughs> in other words, anytime your, your King James used let, it means to hinder. It's completely changed 180 degrees in 400 years. So you kind of have to be aware of those changes in the English language when you're reading the King James. I find it a very helpful translation, though, in many, in many ways, particularly to understand why we view and understand certain things certain ways, why, we, why today we still repeatedly... Well, we say the, the Lord's Prayer the way we do, for instance. Um, I can, I, we can, we'll, we'll see a lot of those kinds of things. Um, as we read, just realize that we're dealing with the church's story of the life and ministry of Jesus. As told by Christians, some of whom were fairly close in time, i.e. the author of Q, whoever that was and those many who were further away and for the most part didn't see the events even if you accept the hypothesis that i have presented for the most part the people the, the material that we're reading is written by people who've heard about it luke wasn't there john mark wasn't there for most of it matthew would have been there for much of it but what we had is the teachings <laughs> If, if he's the background for the teachings that's it not any of the actual stories and the healings and stuff so you kind of have to realize you're dealing with material that's come to us through multiple sources across multiple decades and it's been filtered by interpretation these are not histories they contain history These are not systematic theological textbooks, but they contain theology. These are works of faith written to communicate the belief of the church in the latter half of the first century about the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so long as we understand them as works of faith that point towards the author of our faith, Jesus we're going to be doing fine and even when we see and we will see rather striking disagreements between Matthew and Luke and between Matthew, Mark and Luke some agreeing with the other some agreeing with the other back and forth sometimes they sometimes Matthew and Luke agree against Luke sometimes Matthew sometimes Matthew and Mark agree against Luke sometimes Matthew and Luke agree against Luke. Mark, that's weird. Sometimes, and it does. Sometimes, it's they're all three disagree. How do you deal with the disagreements? That will become an interesting question as we read. Remember, they they are the works of faith. They contain history. They contain theology. They contain philosophy. They contain speculation. But they're works of faith pointing to the author of faith, our our faith. So keep that in mind as you're reading these works. And as we read them in parallel, be patient with each of them. (laughs) That sometimes you'll think, why in the world did he do it this way? Why doesn't he just more quickly say it? Sometimes we don't know why. So be patient with it as you read. There's no homework at any time, really, really, Every once in a while, I'll suggest you go ahead and read this passage, but it doesn't really matter because we'll read it in class. Um, if you miss sessions, that's okay, too. If you can't make it, fine. Pick it up when you get here. We won't be very much further along. <laughs> it took us 32 sessions to get through Romans. 16 chapters. It took us 32 sessions. To get through Romans. Well,
1: was there a lot of contentious
0: people? No. Nope. <laughs> it's just that we would read, Sorry, read slowly. <laughs> and read it slowly. Sometimes we'd only get three or four verses. Sometimes we get a whole chapter. But usually we only got like seven or eight or nine or ten verses done because the content was so thick and the, and the need to connect it with other things was so great that it took a while to work through it. I don't know how long this is going to take, but doing three Gospels parallel is a very ambitious undertaking.
1: It's very interesting, though, what
2: you're getting at. Geography-wise, how far apart were uh,
0: Luke and Matthew? In other words, what part of the country or whatever? Okay, if the Matthew was written in Palestine, that's pretty clear. But it was probably far northern Palestine or maybe even as far away as Antioch the far northern region on the corner there, Uh, maybe Damascus even, but it was written by Palestinian, i.e. Jewish Christians.
2: Yeah, well, what I'm referring to, as they traveled, you know, and they they did their teachings, and of course it's lore folklore that's handed down in one area, then it's in in another area, it should be a little bit
0: different, I would think. Correct. That's especially important for the birth narrative. Because it looks like Luke is the product of the Asia, the west coast of Asia Minor, the Ephesus region of the New Testament church. Smack dab in the middle of Pauline Christianity. It was the favorite of that region. Which one, man? Luke. And it's very much written for a Greek audience, either a a a Greco-Jewish Greek-Jewish audience or a Gentile Greek audience and it seems to have some weird misunderstandings of things Jewish and especially of geography of Palestine so it's written for people who have never been there probably will never go there in that respect it's very fascinating um So Matthew comes from the far northern Palestine area, Antioch, Damascus region, far north, uh, but from a community that is very much Jewish-Christian. Whereas Luke comes from a Gentile, mostly Gentile and Jewish, Greek-speaking, heavily Greek-speaking, and culturally-speaking Greek, on the other end of Asia Minor, Uh, geographically quite far removed, quite far removed. Mark, if the tradition about its authorship is correct, was written in Italy. If the tradition that Papius communicates that it was written by John Mark after the death of Peter, Peter died in in Rome, then it was probably written in Italy, which would also fit the fact that it's 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 the it's the favorite gospel of Rome. And John probably Southern Asia Minor, Southern Central Asia Minor what we call Turkey today. Southern Central Asia, in Asia Minor, about halfway between. And that's where it was written. It, got, it became popular on both both north and southern ends of the Mediterranean. But it was written there. And later, when we're not dealing with John in this study, but John was written in the 90s. And it was certainly done by 100 because our earliest fragmentary copy dates to 120. It's about the size of a postage stamp front and back, <laughs> but it's, it dates to 120 A.D. And so it almost certainly had to – unless that's a piece of the original, then – and that's probably not likely – then it was probably written sometime between 90 and 180. Okay, I just threw a ton of – essentially the basics of first year New Testament in seminary okay. I don't expect you to remember 90% of this no. well,
1: we're actually using your knowledge I don't
0: expect you to remember 90% of this there's no test there's no test Thank goodness. don't worry about it Marvel just remember that when you're reading Matthew and Luke you're reading two gospels that are written using Mark and another source it's a pleasure We would call it plagiarism today, but in the ancient world that was called an act of honor, to take somebody else's writing and to use it as the basis for your own, was a great compliment. And that attitude existed long into the Middle Ages. For instance, when a composer would take a theme or a tune written by somebody else and and do a, a development on it, it was considered an honor. One of the greatest – it's depicted wrongly in the movie Amadeus, terribly wrongly. When, when Mozart took a piece, a beautiful little musical ditty written by, by Salieri and adapted it and then eventually used it in one of his operas, that was a great honor to Salieri. That something that he wrote was taken by one of the great masters of composition, musical composition and used as the basis to create a beautiful work of musical art. Salieri was honored by that. In the movie, it totally reverses it. It becomes an insult. The movie is wrong. Salieri was actually quite honored by the fact that Mozart took a piece that he wrote and and adjusted it and and developed it and improved on it. That was considered a positive thing. And back in the first century AD, in the Greco-Roman world at the time, to take something that somebody else wrote and to use it as the basis for your own writing was to give honor to that original author. That—that that was we call it plagiarism. They call it giving honor to. It's a completely different way of thinking, isn't it? Give one uh, when you're dealing with the question of multiple sources in the Gospels. And we're way over. And we won't normally run this long, by the way. We'll usually be finished in an hour to an hour and ten minutes. When you're when you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. want you to ask yourself a question that New Testament scholarship that's highly critical never asks, and they should ask. Why did Matthew and Luke use Mark? Why? I mean,
1: Luke, they They weren't there.
0: But why would they trust it? If Matthew, Mark, and Luke represented three completely independent communities, Why would they trust the work of another one? Why would Matthew, the Matthew community, trust Mark? My God, Mark comes from Rome. Greek, Roman, Gentile, pork eating. And it's used by a community in, let's just say Antioch. It's used by a community in Antioch to create their gospel. Why would they do that? If the early New Testament church was as fragmented and non-connected and non-communicative as some scholars say, that wouldn't have happened. They would have, used, they would have created completely fresh. They wouldn't have used a source that was outside of their own community. That's the strongest argument against some of the more recent New Testament studies that say that the community that wrote Matthew the community that wrote Luke and the community that wrote Mark were totally separate warring, disagreeing non-communicative communities no no Mark and Luke make sense because they're both Greek type communities both Gentile oriented communities interestingly enough although Mark was written in Italy written in Greek for Greek speaking audience for the most part it is has lots of Jewish stuff in it. If its source was a Jew, named Peter, that makes sense. Its Greek is simple, not refined. As if it's written by someone whose native language may not originally be Greek, maybe Aramaic or Hebrew, but is really good and capable of writing... In Greek originally. That's not easy to do. And you know, it's not easy to, to, to compose in a language other than your mother tongue unless you're really good in that language. Was, back then, multilingualism was more common, but still. Matthew, I mean, Mark reads, it was written in Greek. It has lots of Aramaic undertones, but it was written in Greek by someone who knew the language. Peter wouldn't have known the language very well. He, he would have been able to speak it in general, but the ability to write it? Probably not. Not like we have it in, in Mark's gospel. Makes sense, then, for somebody else to write down his teachings. Luke, on the other hand, is highly stylized, beautiful, literary, Greek, well-written. In the stuff that's original to him, he doesn't make grammatical error, errors in misspellings. And he often corrects the misspellings of Mark, not always, but often, And he frequently corrects the misspellings in Q. <laughs> and the grammatical errors. He'll often change the story. This is one of the little hint. He'll often change the story around to fix the grammar. That's important to him. He was a native Greek fellow. He knew his language. He knew it well. He's basing it on a source. Mark and something else. call Q. If these communities were all separate and disparate, they wouldn't be doing that. Why does Mark, why does Luke trust Mark? He knows it, he mentions it in a sense. He says, other people have written this down, now I'm going to write down, based on what I've studied an orderly account for you. Well, he obviously trusts Mark as he reproduces it, but he spreads Mark out a lot, and he inserts lots of material into it. Why does he trust that other source? Those are all good questions that modern scholarship that's highly critical, highly skeptical, never addresses very well. Or they'll mention it and then drop it like a hot potato. Because it usually undercuts their argument. So, you know, as you as you read and you realize that that, that Matthew and Luke are using Mark and some other source, there's a reason why they're using these two sources. They trust them. They trust their origin, maybe. Speculate. Perhaps Luke, in his talking with some of the disciples and apostles who would have been alive earlier on, he knew Paul. Paul knew Peter and all. You know. So, I mean, there's, you, know, you, could, you could play you know, six degrees of separation if you want. There's not that much, by the way. According to Acts, Luke traveled with Paul. Paul knew, had met Peter, and knew James, the brother of the Lord. So there you go. There's only two degrees of separation right there. Maybe Luke knew that origin of Mark. And since if Peter lays behind Mark, I can trust that sequence. You know. So he, And then, but he has the saying source. Oh, the teachings of Jesus. Why didn't Mark use it? I don't know. But I'm going to use it. Here, let's just fill it in. Spread out the verses of, of the, the sentences, the phrases, in mark, and write in all the other stuff, which is kind of what he does, editing as he goes. So you know, he it may be that these authors trusted these other sources because they knew their origins. You know, so well, what I mean, choice did they
1: have? They didn't have much choice. They no, they could have
0: they could have recreated the wheel and written it all down from yeah. scratch from the oral tradition. That's hard. Why Why reinvent the wheel? When you got a beautiful account in Mark, he, Jesus did this, did this, did this, did this. That's essentially what I want to tell, but it's incomplete. I got this other stuff here. Let's insert it. I mean, it, it makes sense for someone like Luke to use a source like that. But he had to have a reason for trusting it. Apparently... The stories he knew about, you could say, the stories he knew about Jesus followed similar patterns, similar orders of events. Maybe he knew the stories of the teachings of Jesus, the stories of the ministry of Jesus, and he knew them orally from the community, from having heard it preached in in worship and whatnot, and knew that it didn't necessarily disagree with what he found in Mark. Could be. That could be. So that that's a good question. And so when, as we read through these Gospels, these three Gospels parallel, you know, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Are there any questions? We will I mean I'm sure your brain is in overload status and that's okay. Yes. <laughs> well that's okay.
1: My question yes. is that, you know, everybody knows that Christ's childhood was kind of left out. Um mm-hmm. The normal gospel, so was it left out? You know, with these fragments, and what was not there was probably some of his childhood? Or-
0: uh, no. Um, the childhood isn't included in the canonical gospels, Principally because, because they weren't included in the oral traditions, or at least weren't considered important in the oral traditions that Matthew and Luke had. There are accounts of the childhood of Jesus that are available. I went I to read them. I've got them in my office. Uh, there's uh, stories of the pre-birth and early birth era life of Jesus. There's stories of Jesus in his young young days. He was a rather naughty little kid. He used to make little little clay pigeons uh, out of mud and then he would clap his hands and they'd come to life and fly off and then when a kid would tell on him for make, for working on the sabbath day he'd strike the kid dead and then when he'd get in trouble for it he'd raise the kid from the dead so the kid could say he deserved being struck dead i mean it's it's really weird stuff he almost kind of makes you think of damien from the omen when you read these accounts i mean almost nefarious fascinating literature, but it all dates from after the second century. It's weird stuff. Just like going fishing with Moses, huh? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Stop doing that. Stop splitting the water. Uh, no, um, it's the stories of the infancy of Jesus and his young days just aren't important to Luke into. Uh, some of it is to, to Luke. After all, he tells one of the stories. But, but it's just not as important as important well, is there, as you, the other two. Do you have
1: stories about the makeup of his family?
0: Mm-hmm. The Proto-Evangelium of James tells the story about how uh, Joseph was an older man whose wife had died and he had had kids with this older, older woman. Uh, he had James and Jude, with uh, with this old with this woman, and then she died, and then he becomes betrothed. He's an older man, you know, maybe in forty, <laughs> betrothed to Mary, you know, fifteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old girl, and that that was the circumstances. Then it's also why Joseph doesn't appear later on; he's dead, and that uh, James, therefore, the brother of the Lord, and Jude, the brother of the Lord, are not physical brothers. <laughs> through Mary, but from Joseph's prior wife, which would make them uh, brothers by adoption. And that's actually, but the problem with those stories is that they then, they adhere really well to the churches, the third and fourth century churches, and later theology about the virginity of Mary being perpetual. And it's probably the problem, the question is, is the chicken and the egg. Does the story come from the theology or the theology from the story? There are elements of those proto-evangelium stories that are probably true. That You see echoes of them even in the Gospels. The idea that Joseph may have been older than Mary by several decades. That's a possibility. But that necessarily James and Jude, brothers of the Lord, were children from an earlier marriage. There is nothing other than those legends to tell us, the, those stories that are in the Proto-Evangelion and elsewhere. And though that adheres to the need of the church to have Mary be a perpetual virgin, which became an important theological theme as the centuries went on. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. The only one we know for a fact, only thing we know for a fact is that there was a fellow named James, who was a real thorn in Peter and Paul's side. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem, very much a legalist. He got executed because he refused to reject his brother as the Messiah. Which is interesting. Apparently, the, the, the Jewish authorities in the latter part of the 60s thought that he would renounce his brother because he was such a good Jew. James was such a good Jew. He had knees like camel's knees, it says, because he was always on his knees in the temple praying. And so he was highly respected because of his religiosity, but he was weird because he said his brother was the Messiah whom the Romans killed. So in the late 60s, when it was necessary for them to have cohesion in the Hebrew community during the, during the, 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 the siege of Jerusalem, they said, renounce your brother as the Messiah and come back into the fold. And he said, no. So they throw him down in the stone in um, Good guy for that regard but he, he, he could be a problem. James was a problem at times. Very much a legalist caused Paul lots of trouble and he is recognized and called the brother of the Lord and they don't use the term half brother or step brother or adopted brother. They use the specific term for brother. Was he a son of Mary from later on? Quite possibly but that Generated trouble for the church and the virginity, perpetual virginity of Mary. And so they so the stories now <laughs> yeah, you're hearing my opinion. The stories yeah, evolved, yeah. which said that because Joseph was older, and that's probable, therefore he must have been married earlier and the kids <laughs> came from there. All this stuff, all, all this stuff is going to come up as we right. read. The differences between Matthew and Luke's birth narratives are tremendous. And you'll discover we tend to blend them together into one. We have wise guys and shepherds at the manger. And they come from two separate Gospels. And your question was what?
1: Uh, when, when the scripture says before she knew him, right. doesn't that mean that, doesn't
0: that... It implies that they then knew yes. each other after Jesus was born. I knew they had sex.
1: Yes.
0: That, that's how I read it. But our sisters and brothers in the Roman Catholic Church don't like to read it that way. Because of their understanding of Mary and her importance. They'd
1: rather believe they were living together illegally.
0: Not necessarily (laughs) illegally, just non-consummated. They were married, but she remained a perpetual virgin so that she wouldn't be polluted by concupiscence, i.e., Original sin. See, they <laughs> cause
1: more problems with that story Yeah, huh? yeah they really do. <laughs> really. But, but the well, the, pro-
0: the problem is identifying the nature and the root of sin as being sex. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. beat up Augustine for that one, by the way.
1: No.
0: Because he's wrong. Yeah. Well, but. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, it that.
1: makes it, it
2: if, you, if you consider the cultural context. Joseph and Mary were very good Jews, and being very good Jews, it would have been culturally and almost spiritually um, heresy for them not to have had children, because children were the blessing of your life, and the more children you had, the more you were blessed. But well, you know, because in in the Old Testament, the commandment is go forth and multiply, be fruitful. And fruit. they oh, came well, from the line of David, David. <laughs> too. Yeah. Yeah. And so it says a... there
1: were some more children, in fact, some girls. Yeah. Right? Yes.
0: There are the, 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 the siblings. Yeah. Uh, and we'll read those in the gospel themselves. Yeah. yeah. Very good point. There is plenty of evidence. Now, I'll, I'll say this it might be that James and Jude came from an earlier marriage and that then there were children afterwards.
2: That could be true, too. And they could have had a James, sure. too, because they named possibly two or three kids in the family. And the same
0: family. name. Um, it's possible that that tradition is true. There's good evidence to think that Joseph was quite a bit older. So, so that's possible. I'm not going to say that's not necessarily the case, but there's plenty of evidence to show, within the Gospels themselves, that there were other kids. Later, mm. and I think that, and we'll come up with those.
1: Well, we're just glad he protected her, and he didn't, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <He> didn't <laughs> tell. You,
0: you know, the <laughs> reason why the Roman Catholic Church wants to maintain her perpetual virginity is the importance of the concept of of the Immaculate Conception, which is different from the Virgin Birth. Right. They believe that for Jesus to have been born without Perfect. sin, right. Mary could also not be tainted with sin. Therefore, they proposed a, a, her conception by no, normal means where protection came in somehow, sort of a spiritual condo, <laughs> <laughs> to protect Mary so that she didn't get the taint of original sin by the natural product of her mom and dad having sex and conceiving her. Well, if it's possible at that stage to do it. Why can't, it it makes even more sense for that to have occurred then at the step of the virgin birth. That's actually the original reason why the virgin birth was important in Christian theology was, A, to point up the importance of this person. That's one of the ways you do it. Mm -hmm. And B, to explain how he's the Son of God. have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.